you'll have to bear with me. I'm still fighting the uh, Carolina crud, so hopefully my voice holds out. Still coughing up a little bit. <clears throat> um, by last week, we started the book of Joel. We stopped in verse 14. We talked about the pride of life. We talked about why bad things happen. Um, we gave a different ex- scenarios for, you know, is God just? Is why does he allow these things if he can stop them? Of course, he's just. He does them for his goodwill and pre- uh, pleasure. I highly recommend you listen to that one if you didn't. We're going to be in Joel ch- chapter 1, verse 15, but then we're going to sc- slide right into chapter 2. Before we go into a word of prayer, you know, if you only know me at, at the church, you only know a certain part of me, a certain part of how I act. Uh, certain attributes that I have. If you know me at work, you're the general manager at, at my job, you know a completely different side of me. If you know me at home, I'm even still a different person there. And that doesn't mean that I am having split personalities. You just see different attributes of the same person in different ways. Well, the same way that if you're only in certain portions of the scripture, because the word of God reveals to us all of the attributes of God, We only know him in a certain way. We only understand him from a certain personality or or a certain aspect. Well, in Joel, when we talk about the coming judgment on the planet, you may have the interpretation that I used to have, which is in error, it's heresy. I used to think that God was angry, God the Father, and that Jesus was the nice one trying to talk the angry God into not smiting us all the time. That is heresy, mind you. I want you to be crystal clear. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune being, they, they share the same will. They're not at war with each other or talking each other out of different things. They're, they're all expressed in a certain way. And we may see attributes today that may be a little unsettling, but we'll tie them all together. And we'll get a right perspective of God and how he's revealed himself. So let's go before the word in prayer, and we're going to read verses 15 through 20 together. Lord, we, we want to know more of you, Lord. We want to know you expressed the way that you want to be expressed. We want to know your truths from Genesis to Revelation, Lord, and apply them to our lives. And I, and I pray that you would speak to us through Joel and what was happening at that time and apply them to us and what's happening in this time. And that we would be able to use this greater understanding for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read verses 15 through 20, chapter 1. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain is withered, how the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. You may remember last week, there's been a plague of locusts that the nation of Israel has never seen ever before. They have lost all their crops. All of the animals have nowhere to eat. There is no grass. There is no vineyards. There is no grapes. 
And remember, we applied it. Let's apply it to ourselves here. Imagine the stock market has gone to zero. Let's imagine the businesses are closed. We all get pink slips. The mortgages come in. The banks that our monies are at are closed. The entire economy has collapsed. And these last few verses from Joel here in chapter 1 are still explaining that local catastrophe, which was a judgment from God. If you were here with us last week, we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God told the nation of Israel that if you continue to worship idols, if you didn't seek after him with your whole heart, if you didn't follow him, that he was going to judge the nation of Israel. And one of those judgments would be plague of locusts, which is what happened. But here, in verse 15, we see this phrase, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, this word or phrase, the day of the Lord, is listed often, especially in the prophets, the, the major and minor. Quick word, the minor prophets are not lesser prophets. Major and minor prophets is speaking of the size of the prophets. So the book of Isaiah is a very large book. The book of Joel is only three chapters. Isaiah is considered a major prophet. Joel is considered a minor prophet. The messages are equal in power and importance. It's just how we've summarized it over the centuries. Well, we're going to see in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 115, which we just read, for the day of the Lord is at hand. We'll see in our next section in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, the day of the Lord. And then we'll see it in chapter 3. All three chapters are going to mention the day of the Lord. It seems to be really important. And yet many Christians have no idea what it even is. I've never even heard of it. We're going to look at four references in the Bible quickly, just so we can see this rhythm over and over again. Isaiah 13, verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. In Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, For the day is near, even that day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. In Obadiah, verse 15, it says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal return upon your own head. And our last reference we're going to look at, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There are mighty, there the mighty men shall cry out. Over and over and over again, we're seeing this day of the Lord. 21 times in the prophets, it is spoken of this day of the Lord. But when we take it out a little bit bigger, the Bible also referenced the day of the Lord as that day. So when we look at all the references of this day, this prophecy of the future, over 200 times throughout the Bible, it speaks of that day, the day of the Lord, and in the New Testament, the day of Jesus Christ. You may be like, yeah, you know, that, that might be the Old Testament situation, but what's going on in the New Testament? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, it says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So it's still coming. You know, what is this day of the Lord and what's taking so long? We're going to talk about that. <clears throat> the day of the Lord is speaking of God's righteous judgment on the planet. There will be a seven-year tribulation. The church will be caught up, taken home, because we are not appointed under wrath, and in the twinkling of an eye, 
We will be harpazoed, caught up into the clouds and taken home. And there will be a seven-year judgment on this planet. We're going to talk about that a little bit. That is the coming of the day of the Lord that's spoken of here. But let's come back to the book of Joel. Like for me in a 21st century mind, if our economy is in complete collapse, if, if we've lost the stock market and the finances and our businesses and, and we don't know where our food's coming from and, and everything's in a really bad spot, what kind of message do you think that I would want to teach as a pastor? I'd want to, you know, our hope is in God. You know, things are going to get better. The Lord's going to bless us. Everything's going to be all right. Let's just hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We'll be fine. What does Joel say? Oh, you think this is bad? How about the day of the Lord? That's coming quickly. Like that's just in our 21st century mind. It's like, what are you, what are you kidding me? No, Joel says, do you think this is bad? Look at the devastation. Look at it. It is as if God has torched everything. But the day of the Lord is coming where it's going to be far worse. Well, this is important. We're going to see a transition here from chapter one, from this local disaster and judgment from God. And now we're going to start in chapter two, verse one. Let's read the first five verses. And it's going to talk about the future. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen. Excuse me, I added that word. Like of whom has never been, nor will there be, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Verse 3. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble like a strong people set in battle array. This is the day of the Lord that's spoken of throughout the Bible. Now, it is clearly described in the book of Revelation what will happen in this seven-year tribulation. Last week, we talked about the pride of life. We come to God and we we say, Lord, you owe me happiness. You owe me tranquility. You owe me um, health, wealth, prosperity, good relationships. You know, if you don't do those things, Lord, then you, you must not be a good and just God. And we put ourselves equal to God. And that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what Joel says. Joel is saying here, no matter how bad the worst is, it is nothing compared to the judgment of God. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's the New Testament. For those of us that still think, you know, the Old Testament's where the mean stuff is and the New Testament's, where the nice stuff is. That's not true. We talked about earlier about different attributes and seeing God is holy, he is just, and he is righteous, and he owes us nothing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's been said rightly that man has had his day for the last 10,000 years, 
but soon God will have his day, the day of the Lord. Isn't it fascinating that this is what the atheist and the agnostic complains to us about the believer? Well, if God was just, he wouldn't allow these things to happen. He would put a stop. Why is there molestation and rape and war and famine? Why are people starving? Why is America the fattest, most obese company, uh, country in the history of mankind, and yet in Africa people are starving? This isn't right, they say. Therefore, there can't be a living God. There can't be a real God, or he's not a just God. Well, the flip side of that is he is going to stop it. He is going to come back, and he's going to pour his righteous judgment on the planet. Well, he can't do that. I don't think we know who we're speaking to here. As I would tell my almost teenage son, do you know who you're talking to? You can't speak to your mom that way. Don't you dare speak to me that way. Well, in Hebrews, the Bible is speaking about Jesus Christ there in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the ESV, the English Standard Version, it really translates this a little bit better for the 21st century English because when we hear all things, upholding all things by the word of his power, it doesn't quite have the weight. In the ESV, it says upholding the entire universe the entire universe by the word of his power. This is speaking of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that all things exist and consist because of Jesus. He holds them together. Every atom, you're thinking about this. Everything. Everything is speaking to the glory of God, and it all exists for his good will and pleasure. What is the purpose of your life? You were created by God. Every cell that's in you, every DNA, every breath you take, your heart will stop when he says it stops. You will stop breathing when he says you stop breathing. Your entire life, whether it was a good life, a bad life, however we judgment, is completely upheld by him. And we dare come to him and we say, well, this is bad and this is good. No, he tells us what is bad and what is good. So many times the prophets have been warning that the day of the Lord is coming, that he will return to this planet and he will bring judgment. And we're just like, but we want our best life now. You know, you need to bless me, Lord. And we go through difficult things and we even begin to doubt him. You exist for his goodwill and pleasure. And we need to know who he is. And when you understand who he is and what the prophets warned about, the, the apostles and the disciples, and we realize that when we share to the world that Jesus saves, that Jesus saves, we realize what is he saving us from? What is Jesus saving us from? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And for those that don't trust in Jesus Christ, they will live forever in an everlasting fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because he is righteous and he is holy. And when he returns to this planet again, 
it will be not riding on the back of a donkey. Three quarters of the world's population will die in the seven-year tribulation. Now, I do not say that flippantly. I'm very clear that when I teach about end times events, I I don't want to be smiling or acting, you know, like it's a joke. This is devastating. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from his judgment because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish from what? But have everlasting life. Everlasting life where? In paradise and eternity with him. And it's only when we have the full knowledge of God that Joel could say in a completely destroyed economy and nation, yeah, but what about the day of the Lord if you think things are bad? And we can look at this judgment. We can look at it and say, oh, thank you, God. Thank you that you love us, that you gave yourself for us, that you saved us. And what does the world today say about this? You know, when you talk about something so serious like this, they laugh, they scoff. You know, oh, they've been saying this forever. Just like they laughed at Noah when he was building that boat. What do you mean it's going to rain? Rain, what is that? Water is going to come from the sky? We, you got Flood, we're up on a mountain. You're building a boat. How dumb are you? Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 24 about the day of the Lord. He looked back at the days of Noah, and this is what he said. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The number one reason why we are given this warning over and over and over about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day, why we're given the book of Revelation is to point to repentance, that there is a way of salvation. Choose Jesus Christ and you will live. Again, we are created to glorify God. We are not created to eat and drink and be merry and have great times and live a a full life. We're created because God breathed into the dirt and out came Adam and from him was created Eve. We were created for his good will and pleasure. And then we come to God, unfortunately, in our fallen nature, and we say, Lord, you can't do that. You can't judge the world. Lord, you can't do that to people. That's not nice. Well, Jesus taught a parable that explains exactly what the heart of God is for why his wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. You see, in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 18, Jesus taught a parable. And that parable was of of a a master who had a vineyard. And he went off to travel on a long journey. And he left the stewards, the servants, in charge. But they wanted to take over and run the thing for themselves. And so the master sent a a loyal servant back and said, Hey, you know, what's going on? You know, the master wants to know. And they, they beat him. They scourged him. They killed him. Word gets back to the master. No, no, this can't be right. He sends another servant, and they do the same to him. 
Finally, the master says, I'm going to send my own son. Surely they won't do that to my own son. Sends his son. And yet they took the son, they beat him, and they murdered him. What would the master do when he returns back to his property? Well, guys, you really shouldn't have done that. You know, I forgive you. That is not righteousness. That is not justice. What would you do if you returned back to that vineyard? I tell you, it wouldn't be very nice. God has given us as stewards this planet, and we fell and gave it over, and he sent his prophets, he sent his teachers, his disciples, missionaries across the planet, and they have been persecuted, just as Jesus promised. They have been martyred. They have been killed. And ultimately, his only begotten son was sent to this planet. Now, he gave his life up. He was not killed. He was not murdered. He is all-powerful. He allowed himself to be hung on that cross for our salvation. But the Lord, the day of the Lord, is coming when he returns to his property. He created this planet, and his wrath will be poured out. And people out there, they're eating and drinking and giving in marriage, and they're, they're mocking the master, the creator. They're mocking God. Well, God should be like this, and he should be like that. I am terrified with a righteous fear of going before God. Now, I am coming before him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of his love and his grace and his mercy. But that fear allows me to say things like this. Do you think God is going to care or respect Hindu temples that are built in India that are leading people to hell every day? Do do you think that he's going to show respect or favor to mankind for the Kaaba, for Mecca and Medina, where they they are worshiping and going around and doing their stone throwing, which is not leading people to repentance? for Inca temples, for Zen monasteries and Buddhist monasteries? Do you think that God is going to show any favor or respect to mankind in its history? When he returns to his planet, he is going to wipe the place clean and set things back in order. And his son is going to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and we will rule and reign with him. And we think that our lives and our nation and our country and our planet is so important. One day, one day this earth is going to pass away and he's going to roll up everything like a scroll. This is what the scripture says. And you and I will continue to live for eternity past that in the presence of God, worshiping him. Incredible. That's why Joel, Joel could look at the devastation around him from the plague, the judgment of God. And say, this may be a small judgment of God, but a greater judgment is yet coming this day of the Lord. And like every other prophet, and could warn humanity. Because I want you to think about this for a second. Does God have to warn us? Did he have to give us the book of Revelation? Did he have to send his prophets? I mean, we're worthy of his judgment. Let's say he just gave his son. Let's just hypothetically, we'll go into la-la land here, tinfoil hat land. We'll get rid of all the doom and the gloom, the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, the prophecies. Let's just keep Jesus there and all the nice things. He didn't have to warn us, but he does. So the question then is, why does he tell us these things? 
to lead man to repentance. To repentance, to show his son. His son saved us from something. And he is just. Now, Joel here, now verses 6 to 11, he's going to continue sharing about the day of the Lord. Let's read together. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, his strong is, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? The answer, no one. No one. Who can endure the wrath of Almighty God? No one. Now, this also leads us to the cross. Because it wasn't the crucifixion of Jesus that saved us, not the physical act. It was when the father turned his faith away and the wrath of God was poured out on his son. That's our wrath. That's our due. That's our judgment. And he took it upon himself because he's a just God. There is no get out of jail free card. There are no pardons. The penalty is paid. And he paid it because he loves us. Because he loves his son. No one can endure the wrath of God. Yet we all deserve it. It's the pride of life that leads us to question him, to criticize him, to doubt him, to critique him. That's our fallen nature, but God has given us a new nature as believers. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to give you a little speak, a little peek. You see, next week, when we start in verse 12, the subject is going to change. It's going to change from the complete wrath of God to Repentance. And mercy and grace from God. In fact, let me share a little glimpse with you in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant the Lord calls. Repentance, repentance. The point is repentance, not just repentance and get saved. But as a Christian, as a believer, we should live a life understanding and having a reverence and a healthy fear of God that leads us to sin less, to worry about what pleases God and what doesn't please Him, realizing that you will live for eternity in His presence, looking at Him face to face, ruling and reigning with Him for a thousand years. Instead, we use our grace, this mercy that Jesus has given us, to sin more. Oh, Lord, just forgive me. There's nothing I can do about it. You know who I am. Oh, yeah, Lord, just forgive me. Oh, your grace. There's this process of sanctification. We say, Lord, what is pleasing to you? If it doesn't please you, I don't want to do it anymore. Lord, this is deadly serious. I understand. Lord, you took this wrath upon yourself to free me. Oh, I thank you. 
I thank you. Our salvation is secure in Jesus. We're not wrestling out our salvation. But when we have a healthy understanding of God, his mercy and his grace and his love and his righteousness and his holiness, and we realize that they're one. He doesn't have split personalities. He's not an angry God and a merciful, loving God. He is both those things at the same time in perfect unity. And he shows us who he really is. And that's why it's so important that we are studying the Bible from Genesis to Revelation so we understand his full counsel, his full revelation to us. Now, we've talked about what is the day of the Lord. We talked about why the master's coming home to set things straight. Now we've got to talk about when. When is this going to happen? You see, those 21 verses that we talked about, references to the day of the Lord, and those over 200 references, they were 400 years apart, those guys were saying the Lord is coming quickly. And 2,000 years ago, the Lord himself said he was going to return quickly. And 1,900 years ago, the apostles in the New Testament said the Lord is coming quickly. I don't know about y'all's, but 1,900 years ago is a long time. Is he coming back quickly or isn't he? Peter has something to say about this. And you're also going to see a reference to something here in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, but beloved... Do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's that word again, repentance. Now you, this is going to jump out. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. You know, I'm not that old. I know. I get it. But even now, I start to think about a legacy. Like my, like my kids, their kids. You know, I, I think about my workplace. I, even th- I think about this church. Like, how long will this church last? You know, a couple hundred years? I, I was with some friends the other day. I said, Could you imagine pastoring a church that's older than America is? In Buford, they have some churches there that are older than the United States of America. We talk about legacy, but it's all going to go. It's just a matter of time. It's all going to disappear. We talk about things. We try and restore them and make them last a little bit longer. Band-aids. And I think it's important. We need a legacy. We need to be thinking about those things. But our ultimate legacy is the soul of man will live for eternity in one of two places. And the wrath of God is coming, and it will be poured out on this planet, and we need to share this message of repentance. We need to repent and believe and be saved, and we need to spread the message to the whole world. Yes, that Jesus saves, let me tell you what he saves us from. Because nobody wants an antidote unless they know what the sickness is. Very hard to send, throw a life preserver to a person who doesn't even know they're drowning. We need to be able to share with people the full counsel of God. And then you can cringe as I cringe and wince as I wince when you hear people using his name in vain, questioning him, 
Well, I'll believe in God if he reveals himself to me in the heavens. He will, and you don't want to see it unless you've called on his name in repentance. Why does he allow all this pain and suffering in the world? He should come and stop it. He will, and you don't want it to come quickly unless you're a believer. Why did he allow this thing to happen or this thing to happen? I won't believe him because he did. I don't know if you understand who you are speaking to. And once we have a healthy understanding of those things and a right view of God, I think it's easier for us to share the gospel, the good news, that God is love. He is caring and gracious. He does care of us. His thoughts are for us. He has counted every hair on our head. He does know our comings and goings. He does want you to do well. He wants you to be blessed, but more importantly, he wants to be with you in paradise from everlasting to everlasting in the name of our Lord Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your love. We also thank you for your righteousness, your truth, and we pray, Lord, that we would continue to walk worthy of your name. We pray that we would represent you well, that we would know you and understand you, and that in knowing you, Lord, you would lead us through the great difficulties, the great trials of life knowing that these, two, these things too shall pass. You know I say it often, Lord. We don't know how or when or why, but all things work together for the good for those who love you. We trust you in this. We pray you continue to guide and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.